Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Benjamin Red. I'm joined by Nizar Hassan, as always. And this week we have a very special guest with us. Rima Majid, an activist and professor of sociology at AUB, is with us to talk about the, the story that, of course, the only thing going on in Lebanon worth talking about, the protests, the uprising, and everything that is going on in the country. Uh, Rima, thanks so much for joining us. Why don't, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, your research and, and your work? Thank you so much for having me. I am a professor at AUB, and for the past 10 years, I've been researching social movements and sectarianism, so it may be a bit useful for what is happening today. My research looks at the intersection between identity politics and social movements, and I've been teaching and researching this more specifically in the post-life Lebanon. So I look at uh, protests since uh, 1989. And you're also heavily involved in organizing now during the uprising, right? Right. It's just started. So we are, uh, I'd rather say we're still trying to organize, although Mm. things have uh, kicked off very quickly. We're trying to think of alternative ways of organizing, to think of what the system is and what what does the regime mean and how does the regime work and how can we really work towards the downfall of this regime. All right. That sounds super exciting. We will. <laughs> I, I can't wait to dig into that in a little bit. But first, of course, we have just a few quick events that happened this week that we want to go through. The, the big thing, Hurry said, I'm no longer going to be a candidate for prime minister. Sort of, right? He himself is no longer a name, but he still controls the major Sunni bloc in parliament, which means he basically gets to decide who's next, or at very least he would probably need to uh, greenlight whoever is next unless other parties decided to go with a one-sided government. This week, the, the name that popped up every week, it seems like a new name pops up, or every few days, a new name pops up for prime minister. This week, it was uh, Samir Khatib, who is an executive vice president and a partner at Khatib and Alami. And that's a prominent, a very prominent contractor here in Lebanon and, and in the region. And he's like, he's not a politician, right? He's, he's just like a, a, a business guy involved in contracting, which I think is a, a strange choice, uh, personally, uh, because if you're going for something that looks like anti-corruption government or clean government, you probably don't want contractors involved, right? Because that's sort of like the known to be the dirtiest industry, not saying that he's uh, corrupt or anything himself, but it just doesn't look good, right? I mean, this is coming at a time of a revolution. I think the context is what makes it really weird because Lebanon has a history of having businessmen and, and power. But I think what is, I would say, insulting to, to the streets is the fact that in the middle of an economic crisis where people are clearly saying, and I think even at the level of analysis, it's clear that we're saying there's a, there's a system of rentier, uh, you know, neoliberal economy that has governed post-war uh, Lebanon that has failed, that is responsible for uh, the crisis we are in today. And the solution is we get another ultra-rich person as uh, head of the government. From the sector that, one of the sectors that have been benefiting most from this economic model over the last 30 years. I'm not an, uh, an expert in, in the biography of uh, neither Mr. Khatib nor Mr. Alami, but I think it's common knowledge that these names have been very close to power uh, for a very long time. So this is really not a, a government that represents the demands of the streets. They do, though, seem to have support politically, at at least some level of support, uh, including from Hezbollah. Also, a a fun note that Nizar uh, found, Wissam Ashur has been taking out ads on Facebook to support Khatib. Wissam Ashur, of course, uh, another contractor, he's a developer, sort of notorious for the Eden Bay development uh, on Beirut's coast, um, and also 
sort of famously the former son-in-law of Nabi Berri, the Speaker of Parliament. So, so yeah, like uh, th- this guy is very connected within the political circles. It seems as though he has some sort of support, but that may not necessarily go so far because uh, as one future movement MP, Mohammed Hajjar, told the Daily Star this week, Prime Minister Hariri supports Samir Khatib, but supporting Khatib is one thing and nominating him for prime minister is another. Sort of signaling that, well, okay, the name Khatib is okay for now, but we don't really want him, it seems. And another clear thing is that they are divided, which is good for us. Uh, the political I mean, class itself. The political class is divided, which is uh, good for the uh, uprising or the revolution. It's a political opportunity in social movements language. But this doesn't mean that their class interests will not be preserved. This regime, with all its internal divisions, is working towards protecting the interest of a class of the rich in this country. None of these names has said that they will do any clear step to save the economy. They are repeating yet and again, no haircuts, no capital control, which is a lie. Uh, I mean, there is haircut and capital control from our money. Uh, They are just protecting the rich. And I think this is the core of this revolution. And this is why whoever is named, is I think, is not going to be accepted by uh, the majority of, of people in the streets. But I want to say something about Hariri as well, specifically. When he said that he doesn't want to be prime minister, he didn't only say that, you know, it's it's going to be someone else. He said that it should be someone else and someone who takes into consideration what people are, are saying in the streets, especially women who have proven to have a lot of uh, capacity in political leadership. He's basically saying, I want Rayal Hassan to be prime Intent, minister. Yeah, Come on. I mean, it was so clear. And I think, to be honest, Samir Khatib's, uh, like floating Samir Khatib's name, in this particular moment is one of two things either burning his his card as you say in arabic like just making him another safadi in in this process or an action by an opponent of hariri in order to prevent rayal hassan government for some reason maybe khatib is closer to his opponents than rayal hassan uh, because the response of muhammad hajar that we that man that ben just mentioned like supporting him is one thing and nominating him is another is basically saying like we have someone else in mind and it's uh, it's you don't you know impose a candidate on us just because he's close to our camp but Nizar bad things happen yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh <laughs> that, that that is a an infamous quote from Rael Hassan herself yeah. when uh, what was it when the protesters got beat and she said sometimes so the bad day things that happened. Hariri uh, resigned and when when the tents in uh, Riyadh Salah were broken and, and burnt actually if not Rael Hassan's uh, most shining moment yeah she didn't have any shining moments. Let's be honest about this. Like she was in government and she had high expectations with her, uh, with her, you know, being the first female interior minister as if that's like the biggest achievement. And then she didn't do anything. Like, I mean, really. it's a big achievement to have a, a woman as minister. It of is, interior. but it's not I like the, this is this is important, um, especially in a country where women's representation and power is so. Uh, no, I'm not saying that's totally this to be dismissed, but I'm saying she's been in Hariri's political. Ca- she's been a finance minister before. It's not like she's not part of the establishment. She's been working with Hariri or for Hariri for at least ten years. She's she's basically just another person of the same class of the same. She's been involved in the special economic zone in Tripoli, so the same economic paradigm that is that we're trying to fight against. So she's basically just another well, representative she's, she's part of, the of the establishment. Same, definitely. Yeah. She she strikes me sort of as. Uh, an incrementalist, you know, as in like 
her her heart may be in the right place and in, in, at least on certain issues or whatever but she's not willing to just like go against Hariri on anything she she's very much like okay well I will try to push the future movement in this direction but ultimately I'm still loyal to the future movement whatever they decide Moving on, really quickly, parliamentary consultations to name a new prime minister were supposed to happen this week. Those got delayed kind of bizarrely. The The excuse was that too many MPs were out of the country for the Independence Day holiday, which is really mm-hmm. weird because Independence Day was like a week prior to that. And do MPs leave the fucking country for Independence Day? That's just, <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't make any sense, but that's what Bob was saying. And, and so this leaves us with 34 days as of Monday without a fully empowered government. Meanwhile, the economy is going to shit. The lira hit 2300 to the dollar this week. It's a little bit lower than that as we're recording this on Saturday, but it's expected probably to go back up to that level and, and get even worse. We heard this week that a bunch of uh, restaurants, nightclubs, cafes, uh, those kinds of establishments uh, have been closing 265 in just in the past two months, according to the Syndicate of Owners. Also, uh, gas stations went on strike on Thursday and Friday. Uh, This is one of those sort of weird things because it's the owners of gas stations that are doing this and they're complaining about, uh, we've covered this before about like the the exchange rate specifically. They get paid in lira, but then they have to buy in dollars. And so they don't want to make up the difference. And so, but, but I'm a little bit unclear as to what the point of the strike action is, whether the point of the strike action is really to make this uh, mechanism from BDL work that would allow them to exchange at the official exchange rate, or if they're really trying to just put pressure on the government to allow them to raise prices for everybody. I don't know. Certainly they want more money, though. I'm, I'm not the best place to, uh, to answer exactly what they're trying to do, but I think prices will increase in all cases because there's clearly inflation. The question of the liquidity of the dollar is a serious question. We are a country that imports everything and exports almost nothing. We have always had a big service sector, but our economy is completely unproductive. Our, um, the estimations are, are hinting at 100,000 people losing their jobs by the end of, the, of this year. So in the coming, um, yeah, so since, yeah. I mean, in the last quarter of, of the year. This is a huge number for an economy that already doesn't open enough jobs, right? We are in an economy where we have, on average, a yearly 32,000 entrant, new entrants to the market. But the market only opens, in the good years, 5,000 job opportunities. So we're talking about around 27,000 young Lebanese who either have to leave the country they're literally born to be exported. This is probably the best thing we export. Uh, we're talking about the rest are either going into unemployment or the informal sector. So a very precarious life in this, uh, in this country for people who stay here. Uh, government uh, or, or policies that clearly push us to leave this country, go work abroad and send dollars because it's a dollarized economy. I think the, whether the central bank or the government is relying on is literally the remittances of uh, Lebanese abroad and now this is what they are really pushing for right? right and they want us to they want more people now to leave because they need even more money uh, so I think this is how they're perceiving things so it's it's really protecting capital and not protecting society there's no measures to protect the society yeah and, and uh, we we did see they 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 did the the politicians really did next to nothing all week long until Friday that Alan shared this uh economic and financial meeting up in Babda, right? But what came out of that meeting? Well, same old, same old, pretty much, right? Yeah, they insisted that, you know, no policy will be done either on the haircut or on capital controls. 
Uh, but they said that the banks, the PD, like the central bank, will basically ask banks to uh, bring back four billion dollars in capital that is invested um, abroad, two billion dollars this year and two billion next year. And they asked the banks as well to raise the allowed dollar withdrawals because, as we said last week, the Association of Banks in Lebanon may uh, agreed on one thousand dollars per week as the limit for how many dollars you can withdraw from your own accounts. And BDL will be issuing uh, circulars that regulates kind of how banks are treating clients in this sense because there are major question marks surrounding what the banks are doing today and whether it's legal or not uh, to uh, basically prevent people from taking money from their current account rather, rather than their deposit accounts. And then in the end, they talked about some regulation on exchange shops because many people are selling a lot of lira, trying to speculate or buying, etc., trying to speculate in large numbers, basically cracking down on that. And then one interesting note that the former economy minister or the economy minister in the caretaking government uh, proposed something about a policy to organize remittances or to do something with remittances. And it was basically rejected. Which is interesting because it's always it's always been the case that um, Lebanon's policymakers uh, have this one of the red lines, one of the taboos, apart from capital controls, which is has always been a taboo, is basically any formal or official action concerning the remittances. We get so many remittances, we rely on them for our economy, but they all go into private hands. They all go to families or into deposit accounts, etc., without the state taxing them or making any serious uh, investment through this money. So. So uh, this was rejected again. So what is clear from this meeting is basically nothing new will be done uh, in terms of economic or financial policy. And uh, they didn't reach a point yet where basically they have to do these difficult measures. Uh, they're still insisting that, no, we're not going to do it. Nizar, let me say that I think th- it's not exactly that nothing will be done. I think there are there is something that is being done. They are just protecting it. Uh, and they clearly said, I think the most important thing that came out of that meeting is the fact that they agreed that they will legally back Riyad Salemi in his proposed policies. So like they're giving him full, they're covering him basically. And if we remember uh, last week, uh, when Riyad Salemi addressed us for the first time, because he usually only talks to the, uh, to uh, you know, he uh, on CNN to an international uh, uh, audience, uh, when he decided to talk to us uh, uh, here, he told us, "Don't worry, I have dollars and I can I can lend it to the banks, but the interest is twenty percent." So practically, what they are saying now is that, yes, we will tell banks to give you your money, but this will come with an interest of 20%, which means economically, I mean, this is accentuating the inflation. It means we will all lose our purchasing power, but it also means who's going to pay this 20%? Taxpayers. Not just taxpayers, it's pe- depositors and it's it's small and it's us, basically. Uh, um, it's it's me, it's you, it's the average person who has a bank account. And but who, given that they uh, said that they will not do any haircuts, so what they mean is basically it will be the state that will be carrying all the burden. But what I was trying to say is not that they will not do anything, is that they will not do any of the policies that are necessary, according to, to most sa- economists, yeah, yes. to save the situation. They're, pro- they're basically they postponing the same yeah, crisis. I, I agree. But what I'm saying is that this 20% interest on dollars that uh, Riyad Salemi mentioned quickly last time, I think is the main uh, problem. It means that you can go withdraw a thousand dollar, which is your thousand dollars, you will you will have to pay an extra two hundred dollars that the bank will charge you in different ways. 
extra charges on whatever cards or direct charges or I don't know how they're going to sort this out but this will come out of our own money so what he's saving he's solving the problem with an extra problem and this has always been how the central bank has dealt with the financial issue in Lebanon it's always out of our pockets and it's always to protect the very rich uh, depositors um, and and really quickly here, just to tack onto that, the the day before the meeting in Baabda, uh, Lebanon did settle uh, a 1.5 billion dollar euro bond payment, uh, uh, principal repayment, and the fact that they did that basically shows that uh, yeah yeah there there aren't these sort of like out of the box thinking that's that's happening here. A, a lot of people would say yes, Lebanon does need to do this. I, I don't think anybody was credibly saying that Lebanon couldn't do it at this point, but the question is whether you want to pay those dollars back and make your reserves that much smaller right now, or maybe just save those dollars, default now, save those dollars for these imports that you might need to pay for in the coming months. And and no, it's stay the course. That, that was born out on Thursday. Moving on, two people died this week when uh, they hit a roadblock uh, near Jie early Monday morning. Um, Hussein Shalhoub and Sana al-Jindi, uh, they were in a vehicle. They, they hit like this small metal fence type thing that was uh, in the middle of the highway. The car skidded and then it crashed into a barrier and it lit on fire and they weren't able to get out of the vehicle and, and they ended up dying. Uh, of course, there, there was a big reaction to this. I mean, just the, the fact that, that, that this happened is a, a huge tragedy and it inspired people to do vigils and everything. Some of those vigils that, that ended up happening like Monday night, th- this happened early Monday morning. So Monday night uh, we saw in Msharfiye uh, in Beirut southern suburbs and uh, in Nabotiye they had like these candlelit vigils where people were saying that they were blaming the protesters because protesters have used roadblocks quite often uh, as a tactic. Um, and they were saying, hey, this means no more goddamn roadblocks because this is actually, you know, killing people now. But as things sort of turned out, though, it, we, we've learned that it seems as though that roadblock was actually from the army. It was basically just a point that the army was using to tell people to get, take the seaside road uh, as opposed to the highway because the highway is blocked. So a few hundred meters before the roadblock by protesters, you have these little metal fences and a few army soldiers to tell you go right and take the seaside road. They did not crash into the protesters roadblock. But it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't make a lot of difference. This was a big, big moment politically beyond what you said in terms of people like blaming protesters. Hezbollah released a statement, the uh, Higher Islamic Shiite Council released a statement, Nabi said things about it. It was made into this big moment, big sectarian strife moment, where basically the whole Shiite establishment rose up to say, like, this is an attack, and they called it an attack. They, they condemned the attack that led to the death of these people. It was not an attack, it was a car accident. And uh, they used it to incite people against those blocking roads on the highway. And to give context, those blocking roads on the highway are Sunnis from, mostly from Aqlim al-Kharub, which is an area, the coastal, one of the coastal areas in Shouf um, that is close to the south. Uh, and there has been some tensions around this between basically mostly uh, supporters of Amal and Hezbollah and those who have been blocking this road and Birri said men, mentioned like made a metaphor that 
shows you how much they are investing in this moment. He said, like, the Israelis couldn't block the, the, the road to the south, so we shouldn't let anyone else block it. So it was really made into a big This is an unfortunate, so, you know. it's unfortunate at two levels. Of course, I mean, a, a car accident and the death of is tragic in itself. Instead of this being an, an occasion to talk about how bad road safety is in Lebanon and how responsible this government is, they used this moment to sectarianize the movement. And it also came at the, and the, the context of this is really that that night, clashes were happening on the ring where uh, protesters uh, were facing the the Shabiha or the thugs of, uh, unfortunately, the two Shia sectarian parties who were chanting Shia, Shia and uh, Iran, Iran, a clear attempt at sectarianizing uh, the streets, at, at making it look as if there are two streets against each other. And uh, these parties are experts at co-opting any uh, movement. This is not new as someone who studies uh, the history of social movements in Lebanon. Uh, not only those, the, these two parties, most, par- most sectarian parties in Lebanon use this tactic. Uh, but co-optation is a clear tactic that they always use. And I think that this time they failed. Although the first two days there was a hype around it, I think by now the main priority in the country is back to the economic question. I don't think they succeeded this round to completely sectarianize. Um, and, and just very quickly to let everybody know what, what happened with, with that stuff. There, there, there were like several clashes that happened this week that you should know about. An incident in Bikfaya, which is like the ancestral home of the Jamail family. And FPM supporters were coming in a convoy trying to like pass through the town. And so, of course, Katab supporters came out to prevent this. Ten people ended up being injured and five of them taken to the hospital. Also, we saw in Ainurmeni clashes between the Lebanese forces and uh, Hezbollah and Amal supporters. Watching this uh, on TV was sort of like one of those, oh, my God, this is... This is crazy because you're looking at Ainur Romani and everybody is thinking the same thing, you know, thinking about what happened back in 1975 in Ainur Romani <laughs> between Muslims and Christians that kicked off the civil war. And then you have these clashes that are going on, not at the same level, obviously, um, but something that one of these other like parallels that I think causes everybody to think twice. Yeah, but Ben, I mean, I think your introduction is great because you, I mean, you've you've described the events for the past two minutes. You haven't mentioned the revolution at any point, right? This is clearly, I mean, and again, when we talk about attempts at sectarianization, this is how it happens, right? There are political parties, and this is a revolution that started uh, in the streets saying, you are all equal. We refuse all of you. So uh, even parties who have resigned and, uh, uh, you know, want uh, to claim that they are part of the revolution, even parties who uh, uh, think of themselves as the, as the opposition, uh, and they are trying to drag us to this place where their clashes and their sectarianization of, of the moment uh, will eventually kill uh, the, the revolution. But again, I say they failed. And this is why we have to be very aware of what is happening. And I think the fact that this revolution is the result of the economic crisis and comes at a time where this is really the most pressing issue, I think is also playing on our side because uh, people don't have time now to think or to really, I mean, uh, there is a, a bigger issue in the country today. All of this happened. We woke up the next morning. The dollar was uh, 2,300 liras. People are saying, you know what? Enough with you. Uh, we want a solution for the financial problem. 
And it's not a coincidence that all these attempts, the clashes and attempts at sectarianization are between partisans of political parties that are in power, uh, not just any political parties. And there's it's either an attack from those parties on the protesters or clashes between them. It's never any other type of violence. And I'm saying this to say that uh, the fear of uh, sliding into a civil war, uh, I mean, I think this is a concept that is completely wrong. We never slide into a civil war. Civil wars are political decisions. It is a decision that has to be taken. If the decision is taken, they will do it. They will find the arms for it. uh, I mean, they will take the decision based on what they can or they can't do. But this is clearly not a decision that the revolution can can take. The only sides responsible for any violence in the streets is the political parties that are or were in power since the Taif uh, agreement. Yeah, and, and 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 the one clashes that did involve the protesters, the the ones on Sunday night in downtown. Uh, you you mentioned them briefly earlier. That that was um, that was an attack. That was not was, really clashes. Well, there there was some sort of incident that happened, and then like there's a video of somebody getting on a phone saying, "Get them all down here quickly, quickly, quickly," and then a bunch of guys obviously supportive of the Amal movement and Hezbollah showed up shortly thereafter. But, and then and then and then we saw the first like smashing up and uh, violence in is, downtown this is the since October that is 29. being circulated. But I, uh, I bet to differ. Even the initial clash that took place, I think, was orchestrated uh, because this was not just a reaction to a little uh, a clash that happened here. It was orchestrated because this happened and and uh, uh, Sur and Tyre and Balbak and Beirut. So it ha- it happened the same night in different places. So this is not just a spontaneous reaction. This is an orchestrated attack, and I think we have to put it as such. We have to be very clear in what we're we're talking about. These are political parties that are playing the sectarian card. They're playing their their militia card. Actually, they're t- they're trying to tell us that look, we can do this if we want. Mm. And I think we uh, people have responded spontaneously in a very, uh, um, I mean, it, 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 the, the peacefulness <laughs> exceeds any expectation. I think in any other context, we would have seen way more violence. And I think at that point, it would be maybe violence that can be understood. I mean, I'm still, every time I uh, things like this happen, I'm really surprised, positively surprised at how peaceful things are. And and really how uh, the capacity of this revolution to contain the constituencies of those parties. Yeah, I mean, I have a couple of points to make about this specific scene, the, the one on the ring ring bridge between protesters and the Amal, and support, Amal Hezbollah supporters. First of all, as you're saying, it was an attack. We have many testimonies, testimonies from uh, protesters that actually the one who basically was calling these people to come down was the one who had this mission of just like creating this in the first place. And there are many, many descriptions of how he did that and, and how explicit and obvious that was that the whole thing was orchestrated. That is the only the other thing is that, you know, these protesters of or protesters. No, they, this basically um, Shabiha, as we say in Arabic from Hezbollah and, and uh, Amal, what they were doing is basically throwing stones at uh, people and hitting the army, hitting the journalists, etc. For a period of many hours and the army or police had no official decision, it, it, it seems, to basically uh, stop them from doing that. Uh, they were being too nice with them, especially given that they have been too harsh with the protesters before, using tear gas quite uh, randomly, like in an arbitrary manner and very, very aggressive manner against protesters, especially in the first few days of 
the revolution in, in Riyadh Sulah. And it was only after this escalated and took so long that the army took the decision to throw tear gas and they threw it both ways. They threw it at the protesters and at uh, at the thugs. So we're talking about situation, uh, th- thugs meaning people who are attacking protesters rather than anything with a class uh, dimension. So we're talking about a situation where basically there was no political will in the beginning to, because it was, it was sending a political message and the security forces are in this situation where they need a political decision to take any action against uh, such an attack. And when you talk about Sur, as you did, uh, when where Hezbollah and Amal supporters went and and burnt the tents of protesters uh, in the in their main camp, in their main protest camp there, this was not about a road being blocked. This was not about anything like that because there's the the excuse is always that the ring is being blocked. This is why they're coming to attack it. It has nothing to do with that. Uh, in Baalbek, we had things as well. Um, Hezbollah supporters and, and surrounding people and um, protesters and, and basically putting them in the situation where they're stuck in one building using threat, using arms. So it was a crackdown on by this side of the political spectrum. It's playing this role, this specific counter-revolution role, while the other side was using these same incidents. If to, I can to just make tensions. a sociological uh, observation on the margin of what you're saying, I think another important, of course, I agree. I mean, there are all these layers, a political layer, etc. But I think also just uh, visually looking at that scene on the ring, there's something that sociologically jumps to the eye. There was one side that was exclusively men dressed in black. There was another side that I mean, was more diverse in terms of gender, age, etc. And I'm saying this to say that violence is also, and I think it's important to, to mention that, that it's also about toxic masculinities. And this is not a detail in understanding mm. why these people are behaving uh, uh, the way they behave sometimes. I mean, this, this uh, uh, you know, the... Uh, Uh, the excess and the feeling of uh, masculinity that was so clearly displayed Mm -hmm. in their chants and their, um, I think is also, and this is why when we say the problem, I mean, we need to think more intersectionally if you want. Uh, This is a system that is not only a neoliberal inequality uh, class-based divisions. It's not only sectarian. It's all and all, there's overlap between all of these things, and it's also a patri- clearly a patriarchal system in yeah. which toxic masculinity is at the core of those clashes and and how they happen. You bring up something that I think is really really interesting with this, and that is that these people who came out and were clashing with protesters, to my eye, they remind me a lot more of what the protesters looked like the first two exactly. or three nights. So there's there's like this there there is there's a, a gender side of this and there's a class side of this that that, that hasn't been fully explored. Uh, uh, that were present at the beginning. The what was absent was the sectarian uh, aspect to this and the image we saw forty two or forty three days. So the image at the ring, uh, almost a month later, was an image where the parties were making sure they reintroduced the sectarian aspect. You're right to say that the image is very is looks actually similar to the beginning. Uh, of, of the revolution, except that if you put it on mute, you probably wouldn't tell the difference. If you hear the slogans, it's very different. And there's clearly a transformation that happened throughout the, the past 45 days in terms of class dynamics. And also, of course, complex, as I said, it's not just class dynamics, but it's, I think, mainly class dynamics. Uh, the revolution started in Beirut with uh, the deprived classes, many of them constituencies of those uh, uh, parties, 
and the streets really exploded with them uh, initially, mobilizing in the streets and saying, we had enough with all of you, uh, including their own parties. Uh, and that was the image for the first two days. Uh, and this is why I would call it a re- like a revolution, uh, because I think there's a deep uh, a shift that happened at the social level in those uh, uh, two, three days at the beginning uh, that were un- unprecedented. Now, how things developed in the squares, how it spread to other regions and every region has its own characteristics and its own, uh, you know, we can we can go into the details of the, the different class dynamics. But I think specifically in Beirut, what happened is that the first few days, the uh, motorbikes were everywhere in Riyadh Salah. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, you you remember? I mean, you could. I mean, we were walking, and there was a, a kind of a, a very spontaneous and quick alliance between the middle classes and the and and the working classes and the unemployed and the poor to uh, mobilize together. On the third day, uh, the the transformations in the square with some uh, parties and some groups. Uh, uh, bringing their tents, their big uh, stages, the big speakers, uh, you know, the... The, the, the Sabah movement, for instance. The Sabah, for, ex- for instance, and, and, and some other groups. And, and the, the speakers where you were, where everyone became forced to listen to the same songs and to the same discourse. And I think has alienated a lot, a lot of people. And in terms of class dynamics has made a lot of people feel that they are not, that this is not exactly what they want. It doesn't look like them. It doesn't look like their demands. It doesn't look... Uh, uh, um, like they're, you know, the the beginning of their revolution. Uh, you know, I'm not trying to say that we are responsible for having mobilized the way we have, but uh, uh, but I'm just saying that this is the structure of this. I mean, the class structure of the society and how it unfolds, and who are the pre-existing organizations that were already there. I mean, the fact that there's no organization for the unemployed in Lebanon, for example. The fact that interest-based and class-based organizations are or are absent so there's no real container for those uh, for the initial mobilizations to stay in the square and the square quickly transformed to uh, you know uh, the usual uh, activists the, the usual groups that are there some new groups like us have emerged but we we have lost part of this alliance between the different classes and mm. now it's probably more uh, middle classes. Um, I would like to make a comment about this because I have slightly different observations. Mm-hmm. I agree with part of what you said, what you said about the different use of the space and the groups, the pre-established groups coming with their resources, especially the ones with, with a lot of money and the stages, etc. But this really, this was not what brought like the young men who were burning things and breaking this, the, the windows out of the streets, in my opinion. I think what happened is on the third day, the riot police installed barbed wires and fences between them and the protesters. This was not on the first two days. So the confrontation was over. You could not reach the policemen anymore. People who were excited about this conflict, about this physical aspect of it, were alienated by this. Second, on the same day, you had human chains formed, three lines of women forming a human chain, three human chains, right? But uh, just to make it thick and, and, and resilient, uh, between the protesters and the police force, although there were barbed wires and fences. So I was having uh, like a, a quite deep conversation with many of the guys who were coming in the beginning and were not uh, and stopped coming later. And they told me that one of the main reasons is that the nature of the protest or the mode of protest does not match what they were excited about in the beginning, which seemed more real and more serious. And this is not to say that, you know, it's it's um, to instead of to blame the groups, I'm blaming the women who did the human chains or whatever. But I'm saying there are many things that happen at the same time. So the women who are doing the human chains were doing it for a very, very, very 
good reason, which is the first two days, everyone was paying the price of a few people creating clashes with the, with the police. And if, if we were there at the, pro, anyone, who, anyone who was in Riyadh Sulh noticed that one or two incidents uh, or a few incidents accumulating led the police to basically throw tear gas on everyone and you know thousands of people suffocating this was not fair and a lot of people had to take action about this and this is why they did the human chains things were making sense where people were making were doing what made sense but what i'm saying is there are many things by the police by installing these wires and ending this confrontation with the police force that existed in the first two days and with the people taking this uh, one of the like taking the action of the human chains and with the groups that were uh, establishing their their tents and their big uh, stages etc all of these things but still in my view the first week because i really like didn't leave the street any moment in the first 10 days it was still the working class who was basically dominant in, in the city, but it was just a different section of the same working class and doing different things. You saw all of the the uh, small merchants coming with with their uh, carts, right, uh, uh, selling uh, food, etc. Uh, you saw people coming with their ergile, etc. You, you, you had like this explosion of working class culture in the base, in the middle, in the heart of downtown, which is the most anti-working class space ever. It was just not about the same mode of protest that was happening in the beginning. Yeah, so I, it was not purely like the working class leaving and the middle class taking over, but rather a slow dynamic and the political aspect of I this. I mean, we can go into a debate about how do we define the working class and the middle class, and this is why I say classes. And I mean, we can we can go into this. Yes, of course. Uh, uh, I'm not trying to say that they, but I'm talking about a very specific uh, group that mobilized at the beginning on motorbikes uh, that are mainly the constituencies of, uh, traditionally the constituencies of uh, sectarian political parties and the transformation. And, and uh, I didn't finish the, my initial idea because I was asked about the class aspect uh, specifically. One aspect I'm saying is the mode of protest and how and who took over in the squares. And this is because of organization. Uh, uh, this is because of the pre-existing organization and the fact that there are no organizations uh, and and uh, which leads us to why we are trying to work on unions and uh, uh, reviving the idea of organizing based on class interest but uh, but the second second thing is that this is not just a reaction to what was happening just in the squares because political parties were also working their exactly. usual card of clientelism outside the squares and not and clientelism not just in terms of it's not always just positive, you know, incentives, it can also be threats and negative uh, incentives in uh, in terms of security, in terms of not paying, uh, you know, not supporting, taking away the wasta, whatever, uh, especially because I also did uh, uh, interviews the first week with, with a lot of people in the squares and outside the squares. And uh, a, lo- a lot of these uh, people were saying that the legal card that po- that parties play play against them is one of the main ways they co-opt them, if you want. Uh, there was also the, the the fact that we were coming to uh, closer to the end of the month. People had bills to pay, so there were there were many layers that led to this, uh, and it's complex. Uh, but I think th- I think we cannot completely overlook the the the, the transformations and the class Definitely. dynamics in the squares, and how political parties have played on this outside the squares to uh, uh, you know to bring back a lot of those uh, uh, young men who mobilized at the beginning against them you know either to to be to become silent or to mobilize against us uh, in, in the squares
Yeah, and it was so fascinating, the first attack that happened to against the Ring protesters, uh, the first major one, that so many of the protesters were basically saying exactly the same words on TV, which is, we are the ones who are poor, and we were the ones who were protesting in the beginning, but now they are blocking these, like, more privileged people are blocking the roads against us, etc. And it was, nice. it was clearly, it, it was this class dimension that was so powerful, like, to hear at the same time, it was, uh, like, and I know a lot of these people, and they are organized, like people who were in the streets, many of them are organized in political parties. So it was a message that was, I think, intelligently disseminated by these political parties to these protesters, because this is the best thing you can say. If you're attacking protesters, you have no basically good excuse, except if you play on some of these uh, dynamics, class dynamics. But uh, as you were saying, uh, to go back to what you're saying about organization, like it's it's basically this moment that we realize how much we lack organizations that move people exactly. on class interests. Exactly. Rather than I mean, one of the main predicaments and one of my main fears for this revolution is the question of organization. I mean, uh, we have a, almost a fetish with the idea of uh, non-organization with being against political parties because political parties are in, in this context so linked with you know corruption like they have such a negative co- connotation that uh, we grew to refuse them uh, but I think it's important for us to imagine alternatives and alternatives that are based on organization because non-organization will only feed into reproducing the same system. So uh, what I was saying at the beginning, diagnosing what the problem is, is is important. So when we say, when the people say they want the downfall of the regime, what is this regime that we want to to topple? And I think this is a regime that uh, mainly not just in Lebanon, it's not a coincidence that uh, revolutions or or uprisings are er erupting almost everywhere in the world, from uh, uh, Chile to Bolivia to uh, Georgia to Bosnia to everywhere. It's a crisis of an economic system that governs today that is called neoliberalism. If you don't like the term, you can call it whatever you want. It's this economic system that has really made the the, uh, uh, concentrated wealth in the hands of a few so this is a system in, in Lebanon. Clearly, when we talk about the regime, we are talking about the post-war neoliberal uh, regime and what it has done to state institutions. Uh, not that it was great before the war, but I think it worsened after, uh, after the war. And, and then, of course, the other aspect of this regime is the sectarian regime. So we are really uh, tiptoeing in a, a, a minefield that is uh, very complicated. Uh, but I think it's important for us to say this in order for us to be able to think of uh, possible solutions, right, or or possible ways to push forward. So this is a system that as long as we behave or act or mobilize as individuals, we will never threaten them. And they know this. This is why they're very happy. Lebanon has a big civil society. And uh, by civil society, I mean NGOs more than uh, more than anything else, because civil society can be a good uh, term. As many NGOs as you want, as long as you adopt the ideology of the system, which is a liberal I mean, it's highly individualized. There's no threat on the regime. This is a regime that has the first thing it attacked after the civil war and systematically destroyed are the unions. Any kind of organization that is not sectarian and that is not based on the idea of the individual interest is something that threatens this regime. And this is why what we're proposing is that let's seriously threaten this regime then by starting to organize ourselves collectively to defend our collective interest. This is a regime, if you remember the first, when Rafi al-Hariri gave his first 
speech when he gave himself an ultimatum of 72 hours. Um, and then when he came back and uh, uh, with his plan... You mean Saad al-Hariri? Uh, Saad al-Hariri, sorry. <laughs> Because uh, I went back uh, to 92 a, and I was yeah, like, what's a, happening? That's a Freudian <laughs> It's an extension of that, uh, talking about neoliberalism, right? Um, but when, when he proposed his plan 72 hours later, if you remember, he also had a Freudian slip and he said... Uh, this might not be what uh, people in the streets want, but this is what I want. So he's clearly saying, I'm defending my interests and the interests of my class. And I think we should work exactly the same way. We should uh, organize based on our interests and tell them, these are our interests. We organized. And because there's no leadership for this movement in the sense that this is not a coup, this is not a pre-organized uh, uh, revolution. There's no uh, vanguard uh, party. So there's anything. no vanguard party. There's no. Uh, we are working in very different conditions. So definitely no one can speak in the name of the uh, a million and a half or two millions in the street. But we can surely speak in the name of our Uh, you know, where we are in the society, our professions. We can speak in the name of our social position that is based on our class or, or interest to, to uh, really tilt the vertical sectarian divide to a horizontal uh, interest-based divide where we mobilize based and we organize based on our interest, not based on our sects or identity or vertical identities. And we push against a regime that is clearly telling us that they are defending their own in class interest uh, from Riyadh Salemi, from the central bank to the prime minister, to the president of the, to the future prime minister, to the, <laughs> to the future prime minister. They are all saying the same thing. They are all saying we are here to protect the rich. We don't really care what happens to the rest. You can eat, uh, uh, you know, as uh, Marie Antoinette said, you can eat uh, brioche. <laughs> <laughs> so what are you doing in terms of organizing? Just give us a, like very briefly because we have to wrap up. Um, wh what, is, what are you involved in? Because there's this so uh, association. Started, yes. So we have started uh, uh, with, uh, at the beginning, there were many uh, uh, different groups um, uh, apparently uh, thinking about in the same direction. And this really came from the experience of Sudan. And because I teach social movements uh, and uh, I was teaching a course uh, last year on, on uh, the revolutions, the only two revolutions in the region that were able to, uh, to have a sort of transition that is acceptable are uh, Tunisia and, and Sudan. And in both cases, the, the reason and the key player was in Tunisia was the, the pre-existence of a strong, the unions were really strong. In Sudan, it was the professionals association. Uh, so we thought that, you know, in Lebanon, I mean, one, now that the revolution has started, uh, we lack, uh, we, re we always realize how, uh, how badly we lack these pre-existing organizations. So we thought that, and it's very difficult. This is why I pre uh, previously said we're trying. This is an attempt at uh, or organizing. We thought that it's, uh, it's important for us to start building this kind of uh, or organization. So we started with the Association of University Professors. Very quickly, it started very uh, uh, randomly and spontaneously. I put on Facebook, uh, me and another colleague of mine from the uh, Lebanese University, we put a call for university professors who are interested to meet us under the egg at 7 p.m. on the same day. We got there, we had, the turnout was uh, so big. I screamed uh, my phone number and we, cr we started creating WhatsApp groups. We have more than 700 
professors who joined those groups and then we had to think of alternative ways of organizing so now we have different uh, associations and different universities we are still in the process of thinking of how do we organize how do we take decisions etc but there's clearly a need and we are uh, uh, there's such a demand for this now of course the the devil lies in the details of how you organize and how you move forward but this is this was an idea that um, that I think was was successful in that it was able to speak to a, a really big section of, of the society and people say, who, who said, yes, I want to identify as my profession, as, you know, my position in the society, not as a sect or uh, etc. Then this this same experience was taking place with other professions. So we all came together. So some medical doctors, some lawyers, uh, some journalists, some workers in the NGO sectors. We all came and and some architects and engineers. We came together and we created a bigger umbrella of uh, professionals association. Arabic, it's called Tajamma Mihaniyat wa Mihaniyin. And uh, we are, again, still in the process of trying to organize and find a structure for ourselves. But the vision is that we want to work on the base. uh, We want to work on the horizontal divisions and on organizing ourselves in this way, because we believe that the only way to really fight this regime is uh, is from below. Uh, We can uh, politically we can work on, you know, from above we can we can propose we can push for what we want from the government what we want but in the everyday this is a regime that fought us in our unions that prevented us from organizing uh, collectively uh, that made sure we remain individuals and uh, here if if you allow me and this is this i think there are great initiatives that have emerged in the past, uh, specifically after 2015. Uh, I was part of many of them. I uh, uh, A lot of them are my friends and I uh, completely support them and respect their work and I think they're doing great efforts. But I just want to highlight what the liberal system means in terms of even us activists. I mean, it's not completely uh, random that most of the very successful and great movements that uh, came out of the 2015 uh, Houston are all movements that insist on the individual right rather than the collective right. And if you look at the names, it's either Medinati, Naqabati, Haqqi. It's all about the individual. It's never my, 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 right, my, my city, right, my, my, city my, uh, my union. It's not our. It's not Madinatuna, Hakuna, uh, Nakabatuna, etc. I'm just mentioning a few points. And again, uh, I mean, these are great initiatives and I fully support them. But I'm just saying this is the ideology behind. And this is this is something we have to maybe think about and be careful uh, when we organize, uh, because I think this plays completely in, uh, you know, in, uh, in the field of what 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 this regime, if we diagnose it as a neoliberal regime and a sectarian one, then we are completely playing uh, within their rules. Uh, And maybe it's also time for us to start thinking of how do we completely smash it, uh, not just, uh, you know, uh, uh, play within it. And, and and I think right there, like that's that's the note to end it on. Uh, unfortunately, until part two, hopefully, uh, sometime in the future. Uh, that's it for us this week. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you uh, for Rina. having me. Yeah, uh, absolutely fascinating. And uh, uh, we'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, I'm Benjamin Red. I'm Nizar Hassan. I'm Rima Majid. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. <laughs> Thank you.
Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.